Welcome to Conversations on Contemporary Worship. I'm Adam Perez. And I'm Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn and I are part of a team of researchers at the Divinity School at Duke University who study contemporary worship. If you're a worship leader, a pastor, or you teach others to lead congregations in worship, this podcast is for you. We're interested in the well-trod paths about contemporary worship, like music and technology, but also conversations that go much broader and deeper than that. On our podcast, we dive into cutting-edge scholarship on contemporary worship through conversations with leaders in the field, from ethnomusicologists to theologians and sociologists to historians. Our goal is to introduce you to a wide range of scholars and practitioners from whom we have something vital to learn about contemporary worship and the church. Our conversation today is with Dr. Melanie Ross, professor of liturgy at Yale Institute of Sacred Music and Yale Divinity School. Melanie Ross is the author of a recent book, Evangelical versus Liturgical, Defying a Dichotomy uh, by Eerdmans Press in 2014, an important volume on understanding the relationship between the forms of worship that have been called liturgical and those that have been called evangelical. We're not here to talk about that book today, but it's something I want you all to know about. Dr. Ross is here today to talk about her brand new book, Evangelical Worship, an American Mosaic, uh, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. You know, there's a lot of different fields where people define themselves as either lumpers or splitters. That's an awkward phrase, Glenn. Tell us what it means. Well, a splitter, for instance, is somebody who tries to complexify something. Uh, And what you're going to hear in this interview is that Dr. Ross tries to tease apart the complexities of what it means to be an evangelical. And we see that from a cultural perspective, right, where where a lot of mass media tries to lump evangelicals into one category based on political affiliation uh, or or different cultural commitments. Um, But Dr. Ross says that evangelicals are more complicated than that. And she especially makes that point in this book, of course, uh, through their worship. As you hear this interview, you're going to hear her talk about seven different congregations that she uses as cases here. And if you're a worship leader or you're involved somehow in the music ministry of your church, I think this is going to be a great gift to you because here you're going to see a variety of what's happening around America in different congregations uh, interpreted by someone who loves the church. And it's going to be an opportunity for you to not just glean ideas, uh, but to just get a general sense of what the fellowship of the body of Christ is like within evangelicalism during this current moment. Enjoy this interview with a person who has a deep interest in the worship lives of Christian congregations, and she brings to her work a love for the church as well as keen insight to how the church works. Melanie Ross, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Adam. I'm really excited about uh, your new book. Will you remind me, when is this being released? You know, that is a great question. Um, (laughs) As we are speaking right now, uh, in late September, the Kindle edition of the book is available. Okay. And because we are in a global pandemic with supply chain issues, Mm. they promised me that the hard copy is coming. Mm. Okay. Um, So October 8th was the most recent date that I've heard. Okay, so that's still soon, and presumably, uh, Lord willing, and the crick don't rise before the uh, before this episode comes out. the The project has a really auspicious title, perhaps, which is just evangelical worship. 
um, which I I love, and the subtitle, of course, an an American mosaic. I wanted to start our conversation right there, which is um, on the podcast we've talked previously about what it means to be looking at evangelicals and how worship can help us uh, and and uh, worship music in particular in our episode with Monique Ingalls can help us understand evangelicals and who they might be. Uh, you make a pretty bold claim, I guess, to say uh, you can't understand evangelicals without looking at their corporate worship. Can you say more about why it is that looking at corporate worship in particular versus political, sociological, you know, other demographic sort of uh, lenses it is important for understanding evangelicals, evangelicalism more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I make this claim about the importance of evangelical worship, partly from where I'm positioned as a liturgical scholar uh, and studying all things worship, but also because this book, uh, the research for the book was done between the years 2014 and 2018. And I do not need to remind any of our listeners what a turbulent time in American politics that was and continues to be. And part of me was just frustrated with hearing evangelical only identified with politics. And and for me, there was a sense of uh, politics is it's an important issue, but it's a peripheral issue to evangelical identity. If you want to ask me to define what it means to be an evangelical, then don't ask me who I voted for in the election. Don't ask me my stance on pro-life or pro-choice issues. What you need to do is come to church with me. And that's the best way I have to explain to you what it means to be an evangelical. And, and the book arose out of this impetus. Well, what if I could do that? What if I could take all of the readers to church with me and to a whole bunch of churches? Because evangelicalism is not one thing. That's great. And, and sort of pointing us toward the subtitle already, an American mosaic. Um, I like the, the way you pardon the pun, but to put the pieces together and, and say sort of, you know, each of these uh, case studies in your project are a tile in the mosaic um, and creating this sort of bigger picture can you tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit more about the scope of the project? You know what, what the breadth and height and depth uh, of the uh, uh, of your of your study is here on evangelical worship. Yeah, well, I was just going to write a short book that encompassed every evangelical worshiping tradition. <laughs> you know, that could have turned into no problem a twenty volume series, right? Yeah. Um, no, but but so. So I was playing around with metaphors for the subtitle uh, because mosaic is one that's often used, but evangelicalism has often been described as a kaleidoscope or as a hmm. patchwork quilt or, sure. uh, you know, as, as the kaleidoscope metaphor means the pieces can move in different directions and it's not stable. Hmm. I settled on mosaic ultimately because I wanted to give a sense, like you mentioned, that there's an intentionality to the way that I'm ordering these particular congregations in my book. Mm. Um, there are seven of them, and they they represent seven different types of evangelicalisms. Um, so I have seven congregational studies, and they they proceed historically. So. I'm sorry, they proceed chronologically. So the first tile in the book starts with what I'm calling classical evangelicalism. The church that I look at is Park Street Church in Boston, which mm -hmm. has existed since 
the Revolutionary War times. And I go from there to megachurch evangelicalism, and I look at two different kinds of megachurches, uh, Moody Church in Chicago, mm. which is actually the oldest American megachurch, and then North oh, Point. Sure. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense when you say it, but I wouldn't, if you had asked me that, like, you know, I wouldn't have put that together. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm getting at with these are a deliberately ordered tension because I put mm. Moody right next to North Point Community Church, mm-hmm. Andy Stanley's congregation mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, so two very different senses of megachurch Christianity. Uh, and then the other churches represent an emerging church. I don't know if that language is even still useful, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it was mm-hmm. a congregation that was on the fringes of whether it would define itself as evangelical or not. Um, there was a like a neo-reformed congregation. There was a Pentecostal congregation, uh, and there was a multi-ethnic congregation. Mm-hmm. So we kind of start with the earliest forms of evangelicalism in America, and we go all the way up mm-hmm. to the new developments mm-hmm. in megachurches or in mm-hmm. multi-churches. And you frame the project also in three parts that sort of highlight tensions. Um, can you say more about that decision? This So part one, constancy versus change. Part two, consensus versus contestation. And part three, sameness versus difference. Um how did you come to that uh, in the sort of organizing principles here? So one of the premises of the book is that worship is the place where evangelicals negotiate their corporate identity. And this theme of identity negotiation um, was just something that really stuck with me. And I found that there were experts outside of religious studies that had written about how individuals and groups negotiate their identities. Um, and that literature gave me three categories to think about how those negotiations happen. Um, So your identity is formed between these three poles of tension. And the first pole is between constancy and change. Um, So so how can we say that we have, that we're the same person that we've always been since childhood and yet we're constantly Mm. um, evolving and and becoming Mm -hmm. different? Um, and we're, we're always swinging between the two extremes of the pole, but a healthy identity falls generally in the middle for all mm-hmm. three of these. So there's constancy and change. There's also the paradox between consensus and contestation, to throw around some more scholarly jargon. Um, and, and that tension is, on one hand, if you're thinking about the identity of a group, Everybody has to consent to some ideas in order to be cohesive as a group. But on the other end of the extreme, there are always going to be people in the group that are pushing back against Mm. what the gatekeepers are telling them that their identity is. And so we exist in that pole between, yes, I I go along with what everyone else says that we are. And well, no, I'm something separate. I'm Mm. something different. Mm. And then the third paradox is between uh, sameness and difference. And we might think about that when we think of multi-ethnic churches, for example. On one hand, we are all the same because we are in Christ. You know, Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female, all of those things. But on the other hand, we live in a culture where our differences are also part of what make us who we are. And uh, we, we come from different cultures. We have different skin colors. We have different life experiences and socioeconomic backgrounds. And it's that tension between we are the same and yet we are unique that we have to abide in. Yeah, that's great. And I'm hearing already in that in that last one too, that, like 
vocabulary vocabulary that's um, sort of proper to multi-ethnic churches too. This yeah. this like biblical way, you know, ways of narrating identity and difference and and ethnicity and things. So, you know, this is a uh, podcast about contemporary worship in particular. And, you know, contemporary worship comes up in various chapters uh, in different ways. Um, perhaps the, and I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about perhaps big, just on a big picture level, how contemporary worship figures in this you know, in, in the multiple um, identity negotiations that you talk about and in the various sites that you're researching. But I would love to hear uh, perhaps just a little bit uh, uh, from the sort of auto-ethnographic bit from <laughs> chapter one on on this particular question of formation and contemporary worship and um, evangelical identity. Um, uh, I loved reading that section, not least how important it is in, in sort of scholarly positioning to identify those things for us, the readers, um, talking about your own, your own history and, and negotiation with identity. But can you tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit more about how contemporary worship features um, in, in your experience. And then if you can take us big picture into the project. Sure. Um, so the, the first chapter that you're referring to, I give the reader a 40-year survey of what, uh, for lack of a better term, what the worship wars have mm. looked like in evangelicalism. And I do it through the lens of my own experience as one who uh, came of age in college during the late 1990s when the worship wars were mm. uh, really at their fever pitch. Yeah. And that's it goes that, that's 99. I believe is when that Michael Hamilton article comes out, I believe in Christianity today on, uh, the worship on course. how the guitars Just, beat out the pianos. Yeah. The or organs, the organs, the yeah, organs. I'm the sorry. Organs. Yes. Yeah. 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 I was a college student at the time and it was such a fraught debate on our campus. Mm. Um, and honestly, that's part of my form formation as a scholar. I think part of my love for theology in retrospect, came out of those debates. I had a, I was a music education major, so I had a really strong sense of the classical hymnody tradition, and I loved four-part harmony, and I loved complex orchestration, and and all of those really good things. But I was a teenager. I had also, I know, I think five chords on a guitar, and those were all that I needed to be able to play most yeah. of the songs that our youth group did. And yeah. I still have my wire-bound Maranatha praise book with yeah. the, yeah, with all the chords written in in the top. And I that devotional music was really important to my upbringing too. So I say in the chapter, I feel like I kind of have my generation, at least Gen X has something of a unique vantage point on this question mm. because we are a generation mm. that grew up on hymns, but also came to appreciate contemporary worship. Um, and so we can, we can speak to both of those in a way that today's digital natives and the students that were starting college now that were born in 2000 and have no memory of, of mm. that time period, um, don't have the institutional recollection of. Yeah. So it's something we talk about occasionally around here at Duke is, uh, you know, some of us still use the language of trying to negotiate like traditional and contemporary yeah. as ways of just even framing conversations. And for so many of our students at, even at the seminary level, the, uh, that, binary is not even helpful it's just yeah. like people just talk about worship yeah. as a paradigm and 
there's not a there's they're not living in the tension uh yeah. somehow on the hyphen between those things mm-hmm. yeah you know for me the interesting thing was um Thank you for saying that you liked chapter one. I never set out to write it. And then after it was done, I wasn't sure whether I should include it or not. Hmm. Uh, I I mean, I loved it. I just want to say the writing was great, but the pictures were just (laughs) even (laughs) that much better. Uh, Great family photos. And this is probably where I should disclose that I was also your student at Yale Divinity School. So getting to see sort of behind the veil Mm -hmm. of one of your professor and mentors uh, family life is just like (laughs) such a treat. I'm thinking particularly uh, of this childhood photo on page 17, you and your sister and your parents. Oh, just what a joy. What a joy. I had to get all of their permission before I published a picture of them in an academic book. I can say asking your family for this sort of uh, research protocol permission form probably was was a little bit odd, I I would guess. Yeah. um, But but so important too, I mean, you know, uh, this is something we've talked about with others is that, uh, you know, coming as scholars to the topic of contemporary worship, um, you know, there's been a long history within, well, a, a recent history within the academy uh, of of liturgical studies on uh, that's come to the question of contemporary worship with suspicion mm-hmm. um, and not with this sort of insider know-how and mm-hmm. sort of uh, like it being part of our own formation as yeah. we come back to it as a scholarly endeavor. Uh, and and how that colors the project. I mean, obviously, it's just so important to hear that from you as you shape, as you frame uh, the project at the at the outset. Part of that chapter was just wanting to acknowledge that I have I have my own set of biases going into this. I don't think until I wrote the chapter, mm-hmm. I it was holding a mirror up to myself to see how strongly I really um, felt mm-hmm. about some things that I hadn't reflected on before, and I think that mm-hmm. was a healthy exercise. Yeah, somebody somebody told me once, uh, you know, our writing is really just like often us working out our family systems, you know. Uh, yep. So <laughs> it's like, oh wait, that's that's totally true for me too, um, for better or worse. No, for better, for better. Um, because and I think because just coming to it with this charitability, this hospitality that um, that you experience. Um, you know, sort of the evangelical culture as, you know, people and as families and uh, like uh, the familiar, the familiarity of it is also what, and what allows you to write as far as I can tell, um, if I can, I can make this mm-hmm. claim, you know, allows you to write so charitably about the phenomena as a whole in a, in a context, in a, in a publication world that at the moment, not just in liturgical studies, but in the broader uh, water is not ch- hospitable or charitable toward evangelicals. Yeah, I mean I've I've always felt that evangelicals were the ones who gave me my prayer language and my language of faith mm. and I'll spend the rest of my life paying back that debt. I'm still mm. I still love the evangelical church not uncritically but um mm-hmm. but no tradition right. is perfect so this is my home. Right. Like perhaps you are also doing the identity negotiation between (laughs) things things in your project. Okay, so those (laughs) those scholars uh, those scholars were right. What inspired the project? What gap, or uh, were you trying? Are you trying to fill with this project? What need do you see in in the scholarly? 
contact and in, in the literature, as mm-hmm, it were, mm-hmm. um, that this the, that this project speaks into. Yeah, oh, great question, and I'll answer it two ways because both were important. A liturgical scholar named Jim White, James White, who was a mm-hmm. United Methodist theologian, who has since since I was a grad student, he's always been one of my interlocutors, mm-hmm. and. Jim White is important to the history of liturgical studies for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is because he was really the first liturgical scholar to pay significant attention to what we would call evangelicalism today. And Jim was writing at a time when Willow Creek was at its height and seeker services were really in vogue. So mid-90s are we talking here? You're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what he really wants to do is to find a historical precedent for the seeker service model. And he goes back to Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening Mm -hmm. in American history and um, all of the revivals that he would have on the frontier. And he said, you know, what, what Finney did that was unique in American liturgical history is he took worship and he used it as a means to an end. So... Finney um, starts off by saying music is the warm up to what happens during the revival. That's where uh, you get all fired up, your heart gets warm and it's softened and you're then prepared to hear the second part of the revival, which is the evangelistic powerful sermon. And that leads you to the third phase, which is uh, the altar call at the end. So ever since the Second Great Awakening, evangelical worship has had a musical warm-up, a hard-hitting sermon, and an altar call of some mm-hmm. sort. And really what the mega churches are doing is just putting 20th century forms onto that historical pattern. And in some ways, that makes a lot of sense. I can, I can see where that comes from. And I think there are those today that would look at evangelical worship and say, yeah, it's it's three rousing songs and then a spiritual TED talk mm. of some sort. We're not really doing anything <laughs> different than they were doing on the frontier. It's a new technology, yeah. but that's it. Yeah. Uh, but, but that language of musical preliminaries and then sermon mm. and then harvest of converts at mm. the end has always troubled me. Hmm. Partly because, and, and I wonder if any of the worship leaders who are listening are feeling this too, it's such a disservice to say that all the work that goes into um, congregational singing and prayer and planning is just a, a warm-up preliminary. Yeah. That never felt right to me. Um, I also just know from my own experience that there is not a single service order pattern that fits every evangelical experience. True. I know some of my students currently have grown up in the South where there is an altar call at every every uh, good Southern Baptist service that they've mm. been a part of in their lives. Uh, but there are other churches that that would never happen on a Sunday morning or, mm. or, or they have different mm. theological structures. So that was one piece of what I wanted to do in the book was to correct the misconception that there are these three parts that transcend all mm. of evangelicalism. And I wanted to complicate yeah. the picture. And I think, I think that piece, um, you know, without identifying, uh, or I'd like to identify one thing, which is just that James White's writings, Jim White's writings on this particular topic have become the standard fare of seminary worship education. And so when you go to 
uh, introduction to Christian worship or, or uh, Protestant worship traditions in transition, and you yeah. get this sort of um, Cliff Notes version yeah. of both evangelicalism, which he talks about as the frontier tradition, and Pentecostalism, yeah. both um, – it's one of those places uh, where, um, and and Jim White is my is sort of my academic grandfather, yeah. also through through uh, well through you and through Lester uh, Ruth. But you know, I feel like this is one of those moments where it's like, okay, he, he clearly knew a lot about a lot of the other traditions, mm-hmm. and perhaps experientially less so <laughs> about the traditions identified as sort of frontier and. Uh, Pentecostal and and those chapters in that book are um, there. It just left a lot of leaves a lot of work for us to keep doing um, yeah, on identifying and and breaking those open. And it's it's so convenient to have a, a three step process. I mean, it's it's something that you can you can latch onto it and it sticks with yeah. you and, and whoever can devise that scheme kind of wins the day. The one that stays yeah. in people's heads, <laughs> you right. know, they win. That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and just that presumption has been, or that description of frontier worship has been reproduced sort of, uh, I think this is the right use of the word ad nauseum in yeah. liturgical scholarship, um, uh, because of just how wonderful in general, the work of James, yeah. James White on yeah history of Protestant worship in America is, yeah. Um, yeah, my, my, um, I, I, know him personally, but I'll say my intellectual relationship with him is so complex because I'm really genuinely grateful uh, that he launched this field. Somebody had to start and he was bold in going there and talking about things that were not popular in his time. So I really do owe him a huge debt of gratitude. But on the other hand, uh, as you say, the field is wide open for further work to continue. Yeah. And, and, and few who, who, uh, few who are bold enough to go where only (laughs) Jim White has gone before. No. Um, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of work left to do. Um, so sorry, I interrupted you're saying, and there's a second way that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. So a second motivation behind this book, uh, I, I talked a little bit earlier about how my concern that politics was driving the conversation about the Mm -hmm. definition of evangelicalism for so long. Part of that political piece was there's, there's been a recent trend among evangelical scholars to say, we have to be able to explain uh, what's happening politically. And to do that, we have to study something other than churches. Because it, mm. isn't it possible that Fox News is forming mm. evangelical theology more than the sermon that the pastor is giving on Sunday morning? Or or uh, aren't other things like the novels that evangelicals are reading or the podcasts, not the scholarly ones, like we're having right now, but isn't it possible that Fox News is shaping evangelicalism more than a sermon that somebody hears on Sunday morning yeah. or or the evangelical yeah. media that people consume, the movies that yeah. they watch, the novels that they read? Yeah. Those are really what scholars should be paying attention to more than the official theologies that come out of church. I'm a good scholar who applauds all those avenues of discovery. I think there's a lot to learn from studying those things. But I think ecclesial life is at the center of evangelicalism. And this book is really a Mm. call to keep worship and the church central to our definition of what evangelical means in the 21st century. Uh, Evangelicalism, I say in the book, maybe evangelicalism is more than its corporate worship, but it's never anything less 
Mm. Yeah, never less than its worship, and and increase, and and this is, I think, part of what's so interesting about setting um, your work aside alongside other work around this vague umbrella term of like, you know, Pentecostal evangelical mm-hmm. charismatic yeah. kind of the, the wa- contemporary waters of, of the way those things have intersected in the past mm-hmm. um, uh, few decades. But why it's so helpful is because uh, we get this sort of conversation going on, on actually just how, what the what the texture of that of the liturgical and theological life is in relation to these other political things i'm thinking particularly about a journal or a a web series uh political theology web series on um sort of pentecostals and mm-hmm. the sort of post election mm-hmm. stuff um some of which uh you know brought in sort of key theological sort of commitments yeah. um, to, to understand that the subsequent political life, I mean, yeah. that, that, that this is a starting point um, and, and some of its roots go much deeper in, in evangelicalism yeah. than, than we give credit for sometimes. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I went to each of these seven congregations, none of them started with, let us talk to you about who you mm. should vote for or who, <laughs> you know, we, we think our congregation should vote mm. for. There was, if anything, almost a distaste for that. It, it was more, come, oh, sure. look at what we're doing in the community, see our neighborhood outreach. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll be curious to see if those emphases have changed at all in the last four yeah. years, uh, three three years, I guess. Yeah. Um, your, your research concluded in 2018? 2018, yeah. 2018, yeah. So, um, you know, we were talking about James White, this frontier, the, the sort of threefold order of worship. You, at different points, you know, look into the actual order of worship in these various congregations and one of them in particular that stuck out to me, the conversation you had, I believe it was regarding North Point around the template yeah, as a way yeah. of speaking about um, what others have called deep essence of, of, you know, sort of what the form, the like actual sort of chronological structure of a worship service has to do with its meaning or it's uh, just what it is as a thing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that particular, um, and I know you've written previously about structuralism and sort of the ways in which liturgical conversations revolve around shape or structure. And, and how does this conversation about evangelical worship resound with or, or check or uh, sort of reframe conversations on the structure of worship in liturgical studies? Yeah, that's a huge and a wonderful question. Of all the congregations that I researched for the book, North Point was probably the most similar to that uh, Second Great Mm. Awakening order that we talked about with music, preliminary music, Uh sermon, altar call at the end. North Point doesn't, doesn't call what it does on Sunday morning. It's template. Uh, by those categories. It uses three different words. They say that you move from being engaged in worship. Uh, the engaged portion of the service is everything from how your experience goes in the parking lot mm-hmm. to dropping off your kids to sitting mm-hmm. down in the auditorium and the welcome mm-hmm. um, uh, openers that that give the congregation a chance to laugh and to feel comfortable mm-hmm. in church. So the first step of this is to engage Uh, And then you want to involve the congregation, uh, and that's where singing comes in. That's where uh, baptism comes in, because a person watching a 
a baptism, even if they're not a Christian themselves, is emotionally mm-hmm. engaged in listening to the, the person's story. And and both of those steps, engage and involve, are meant to lead you to the third step, which is to challenge. And that's where Stanley says, I don't want to water down gospel truths. I want to make them hard hitting, but I want you to have had a good enough experience early in the service that you are at a place where you can listen Hmm. to difficult truths being taught. So the structure is similar, but I think at North Point, one of the things that would distinguish it from, say, Charles Finney's three-part order is that um, Andy Stanley takes Jesus's example of the parables as his Mm. model. So there's a biblical warrant for structuring Uh. a service this way, because, you know, as Stanley would say, Jesus does exactly the same thing. He draws the crowd in. He tells them a good story. He asks a question that gets them really burning to Mm. know the answer. And then he hits them with really Mm. hard truths. And -hmm. I think that's something that's distinctive to evangelicalism, too. It's not just this pragmatism, as that's one of Jim Mm -hmm. White's favorite words to describe. Um, There's definitely an element of pragmatism, but there's also a strong desire to ground this in scripture. There needs to be a biblical warrant, a biblical pattern. Um, and and for evangelicals, finding warrant for the patterns that they're using in scripture is always yeah, really important. And I appreciate how that connects to, to the, the sections you had about really the ways in which this particular community is is active in its local community and like the the work that they're doing on that, like following from that challenge piece, uh, just really highlighting the significant investment monetary and otherwise, um, that they're inviting the congregation into. And, uh, and that just being one of these helpful, I think to me, helpful reading it in light of other models and seeing like, ah, yes, like, you know, it would be a caricature to, to if you had left this out, like this important, Mm-hmm. sort of way in which they understand to be in mission uh, for the community and not just yeah. on a mission to uh, count conversions or count baptisms or something, yeah. you know, in that, in that prag- in the yeah. sort of great awakening sort of pragmatism that they, they're invested in their local community in really concrete ways, um, time, energy, mm-hmm. money. And that just, yeah, really sort of sings, uh, even, even as the, <laughs> the sort of hilarious, uh, example you bring up about, uh, on the giving Sunday, I think it's hilarious and not actually funny, but it's like, <laughs> I want you to give a one-time gift and this is all going to be, you know, we're not taking any sort of, you know, head off the top. It's all going to go back into the community. Thirty-nine ninety-five. you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> just like leaning into that fully, uh, on behalf of the, it's just hilarious. And, and that's so so typical to me of North Point, and I mean that in a really generous way. They had they had done research on mm. at, at that time and in their demographic, what's what's the amount of money that a person could spend without feeling like they have really oh. gone over budget that you could spend yeah. without it hurting, and thirty nine ninety nine was the wow. threshold for that. So that's that's what they asked that's for. That's amazing, and yeah, and now I'm having this sort of like uh, sociological research, Bill Hybels, uh, you know, communities this sort of like ways of imagining um who the who the audience yeah. is being sort of activated for really like uh yeah, yeah a really remarkable way you know at, at north point uh as we were talking about but in every congregation that i visited that was just such a clear and recurring theme that 
things are so much more thoughtful behind the scenes than my very mm. first impression might have been. There's an intentionality mm. to each one of these churches and an intentionality, I think, to evangelicalism yeah. as a whole that I hope really comes yeah. through in the book. That it's it's not just this easy picture of people with their eyes closed and hands in the air. There's so much thought and theology that goes into what happens on a Sunday morning. Yeah. I loved uh, sort of at the at the in the conclusion you come back around in a way to talk about the ways in which evangelical evangelicalism is portrayed visually by um by its worship settings. Um you say just tell us a, a little bit more about that and then tell us what what you have in the in the book uh give us a teaser on that piece. I think it's just it's so remarkable. Sure, thanks. One of the uh, things that sparked my thinking about this book was that there is a, a photograph that has become mm -hmm. ubiquitous. Um, if you, this was before the presidential election, so uh, this exercise has probably changed. But if you typed the word evangelical into a mm -hmm. Google image search, the picture that came up time and time again was of a person whose eyes were closed and their hands were raised up to the heavens, uh, and and you could practically hear the band in the background and the person mm -hmm. swaying and and if you could get a whole auditorium yeah. full of people that captured that pose it was even better lights silhouettes this yes. sort of yeah got it yes um and it really struck me that worship had become the visual symbol for evangelicalism. Mm. Um, what, whatever that Google accompanying story was about, uh, sometimes it was about immigration or about politics or about, I don't know, a, a food drive in the neighborhood. It did not matter what the topic of the story was. The photo that went with it was yeah. worship. And I, I thought that said something interesting, first of all. Um, but the second thing about that image and, and those of us that lead worship or even have spent a lot of time in evangelical congregations, what we know is that it is not always true. And I'm thinking of myself as a worship here, worshiper here, too, so I'm poking a little fun at that. But um, that, that model of the fully abandoned worshiper at the front mm. of the room is just one out of many. For, for every fully mm -hmm. abandoned worshiper, there's somebody standing in the back row kind of shifting their weight from foot to foot and thinking, oh, this worship set has gone on for 30 minutes. How many more times are we going to repeat this chorus? I'm really tired. Would it draw attention if I sat down in my chair? Yeah. Would that make me look yeah. unspiritual? There are all yeah. of these little negotiations yeah. going on. Yeah. I'm smiling um, really loudly over here, but you, you can't hear it on the <laughs> audio. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. We, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> That's right. and, and worship is both of those things at once, right? It's, it's always the best and the worst together. And, and we need a book that does justice to the complexity mm. of that congregational moment. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I do wonder what the image would be now. Well, maybe the listeners can go find out for us and uh, leave <laughs> us a comment. Speaking of our listeners, um, if I'm a worship leader, listening to the podcast and uh, interested in your book. Uh, what do you want to say to me, the worship leader uh, reading this book? You know, what, what do I, what's there here for me to take away from this conversation yeah. and from the yeah. project? I will. I've, the first thing to say is I really hope that you do read it. Uh, and I say that not at all from a sales yeah. perspective. Uh, I say it because I really wrote the book with worship leaders in mm. mind. It is, it's kind of a love letter to mm. all of the hard work that worship leaders do. Yeah. Um, 
And the stories, I mean, I'll say it feels like the chapters are congregational stories in a way that, um, and not just to, you know, pepper your ego, they're just really eminently readable, eminently readable. And they're very readable. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and the prose is, is just so, yeah, just so well-crafted, like reading wise there, you hear academic book and you're like, uh. (laughs) <laughs> there are great stories here, great narratives, wow. and uh, really, really easy and um, enjoyable to read, which wow. is no small task and no small accomplishment. Oh, I'm really humbled by that. Thank you. Um, I, I think in getting to do research in seven different congregations, a lot of the pastors that I talked to or worship leaders uh, said to me, you're doing the thing that I wish that I could do. I would love to be a fly on the wall of somebody Ah. else's congregation. And I think what this book does is to give you a chance Uh. to, if we can't physically visit to at least through the pages, uh, Mm. be united by the, the common problems that are faced. And mm. um, yeah, I, I, I think on one hand, you'll be encouraged to know that you are not mm-hmm. alone in your vocation. Oh my goodness, that's happened to somebody else. Or yeah, uh, yeah I can't get my congregation to sing either. I'm playing <laughs> my heart out and they're just staring back at me. What you yeah. do in that moment? Or, or maybe uh, like another chapter of the book, maybe you're a worship leader that is leading on a Sunday morning right after a um, a racial tension has exploded the news the Saturday mm. night before, and somebody from your congregation comes up to you right before the worship set and says, you've got to say something about this. Mm. And, and you freeze. And you know, how do I respond to that? You know, there are all of these little recognizable yeah. stories that I think yeah. will help you feel less alone. Yeah. Um, on the other side of that, I suspect that there are moments in every chapter where you will shake your head and say, wow, I don't think that way at all. Or my church would Mm -hmm. never make that decision. Or that makes me uncomfortable for some reason that this congregation um, has chosen that direction. And I think those could be growing moments too. So, Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Um, And if I'm a pastor, uh, I mean, some of those those same things apply. Mm -hmm. Is there anything particular you'd want to highlight uh, for preachers in settings and contemporary worship settings they can glean from these pages um, that you want them to hear when they read this book? Yeah, one of the things that I hope that they take away, and I think this is true across the board for all the churches that I was at, there was a really good relationship between whoever was leading the music and whoever was preaching the sermon. Um, I think there are seven really healthy models of uh, pastor-musician conversations, and that mm-hmm. shines through in in the way that oh, I experienced yeah. worship and that the congregation does. Um, and if there's anything in the book that you can take away that that helps you and your musicians to work more closely together f- on behalf of the congregation, I, I think that would be mm-hmm. great too. Yeah. I feel like in so many places in the book um, – the sense of the congregation's story being sort of woven into the decision-making processes. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like that in particular was something that was uh, endearing to me thinking about, yeah, these relationships among staff and stuff, uh, attention to, to the kind of the, the lifeblood, the heart of the congregation and it's, and it's sourced its own peculiar and particular story um, and how the sort of staff sort of, yeah. Uh, embody that and and negotiate with that and sort of are living in the in the sometimes confusing confusing tensions of Mm -hmm. how the congregation sees themselves 
That was a moment of learning for me in the research of this book. I I had such a privilege to be able to actually visit pre-pandemic on-site all of hmm. these places. Um, and I got a real sense of how regional evangelicalism is, hmm. um, the way that what you would do for a service in the Pacific Northwest is not going to work in the heart of the South and, and maybe wor- sure. works well in a Midwestern congregation is not going to translate as well to the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the one of the great appreciations that I came away with, the way that pastors and worship leaders are experts in their particular congregation and mm. the surrounding communities and can make really wise choices based on where they are geographically and what the climate is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even a, a word there for worship leaders who, you know, some of us are so geographically um, transient that uh, there's something about leading worship in different contexts that, yeah, yeah, perhaps requires us to listen for a while. um, And and that, you know, there's not, there's more than just the modes of music making that, um, that define particular places. Uh, That's interesting to think about. Um, One one more thought on that relatedly. Um, I think one of the things that I hope that this book helps worship leaders to do is to think on a meta level, um, to see how their work is important in the grand scheme of things. I think so, so much of the worship leading job is being in the trenches and going week by week and uh, keeping all of the balls in the air and the musicians organized and the repertoire decided. And and those kinds of small decisions can really take over your vocation. Um, But I think what this book does is to challenge you in a good way to step back and to see that um, the work that you're doing is really important, both for your local context uh, and for how Americans understand what evangelicalism is in this current moment. Um, You are the public theology of your Mm. church, and that's a really important role. Mm. Yeah, right. It's flipping, I mean, just sort of taking the project and, and activating it that way too. I, if if it's true, if what you have to say in the book is true, what a what a um, responsibility and the uh, important work of caring for the congregation's public theology, as you said, um, in your work. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, up well, the I ante on of, that. I thought of one last thing that I would um, yeah, like please. to say to worship leaders, and that is, this will probably sound cheesy, but your congregations appreciate you so much more than you mm. are probably hearing. Mm. Um, I tell you, every place that I went into, just congregants were quick to say, you've got to let me tell you about the wonderful things that our pastor does. And uh, boy, just it yeah. was it was outpouring and it was contagious. And I don't know that they always say that to you. I'm afraid that you more often get letters about it was too loud in the sanctuary yeah. this week or I really didn't like that particular song. But, wow, you're, you're doing work that uh, is, is vital and the congregation knows it. One last question. Um, where does the work go from here? Um, you know, as with any scholarly conversation, you sort of volleyed and now waiting for, mm-hmm. you know, the next, the next volley, what, you know, where do you hope the work, the conversation goes as a result of this book in response to this book? 
what what do you hope to see in the in the big picture conversation? Yeah, well, I joke that I've I've written evangelical worship and American mosaic. So logically, the next step is evangelicalism, a global mosaic. We're gonna uh, <laughs> ah, there you go. Just keep building the site visits everywhere. Can you do it? Can you just do it sort of by continent next? Yeah. Uh, so like your next you know six projects are accounted for, and then <laughs> and then global mosaic. That would be amazing. And this I would is. need a lot of collaborative help with it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that that is one, um, one avenue for further discussion is how the American evangelical scene translates um, to various churches around the world and whether those lines of transmission work in both ways. Uh, what, mm. what influences are we receiving from mm. Europe, from mm-hmm. South America, from Asia, Africa, mm-hmm. you, you name it. Yeah. I think obviously there's there's well, how do I want to say this one one book the book that I wrote cannot do it all so mm-hmm. I had to narrow the scope of my research in this book and I did that by saying I'm going to write about congregations that are self-identified as evangelical and that are independent congregations they're not part of denominational structures um and I I think there's some really interesting work to be done thinking about churches that are both evangelical and some kind of a denominational identity and how they negotiate those worship resources. Uh, When you have the evangelical worship industry that's giving you Mm -hmm. Hillsong and Bethel and Elevation and Sovereign Grace and uh, uh, you you name the worship source, you've got that on one hand and you've got your denominational uh, hymnal and worship resources on the Mm -hmm. other. Um, I, I think there's some really interesting negotiations that happen at that level. Uh, I think that this book, I actually had to cut a couple of chapters because it was already too long, but I regret that I only have one chapter on multi-ethnic worship, and I did some research at a predominantly African-American congregation that didn't make it into the book, but there's some really good venues to be researching, too, about um, just different kinds of evangelical diversities. Mm -hmm. Um, Where's the Hispanic voice? Where is the Asian voice? Where is the Mm African-American voice? How do they all contribute to, um, to a more diverse racial mosaic than than maybe what's currently represented in the book? That's excellent. Thanks, Melanie, for your work. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation, um, both at you know conferences and things as our paths cross, but perhaps also on the uh, on the interwebs here uh, in response to the show. Thanks, Adam. This has been a blast. Thanks for joining us on Conversations on Contemporary Worship. We would like to thank the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for funding this project and the Divinity School at Duke University for providing support. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find out more at sites.duke.edu backslash contemporary worship. Check there for additional content, including new podcast episodes and supplemental resources that you can use in your classrooms and with your teams and with your congregations. Stay tuned for more episodes where we will continue this conversation. See you next time.